Are you glad you came to church today to talk about Jesus? Awesome. Two people. That's so encouraging. So we're up to Jesus chapter 11 and we're finishing off chapter 11. We spoke about it last week. Jesus is um, the resurrection and the life. And, And we saw people just incredibly touched by God last week in this place. And maybe he hasn't finished doing business with you. I don't know. But Jesus is in control. And people came today just to hear that. Don't stress. Don't melt down. If something doesn't go how you thought it would go, that's life. But we don't have to be satisfied with that because of Jesus. Jesus is going to come and he's going to make it all right. He's going to bring it all back together. He's going to sort it out. But we have to trust him. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Because, oh, my life's a mess. Why isn't he coming right now? Well, we need to trust and have faith knowing that God was there in the beginning before time began. He's at the end of time and he's here right now. He goes before you, he's behind you, he's around about you and he's going to make a way through whatever it is that you're facing. And if you believe that today, say amen. Amen. Cool, there's a few more than two. That's good. You're with me. So, let's carry on. John chapter 11, uh, verses 33 and 35. Before I read, we, we left off last week in case you weren't here or you forgot where Mary and Martha were dealing in the if-onlys. The if-onlys. Jesus, if only you were here, our brother Lazarus would still be alive. And they had faith that Jesus could bring him back to life, but they still declared with their mouth, if only. If only you were here, we could have avoided all of this. And sometimes we get caught in the if-only state of mind. If only I had enough money. If only I had this opportunity. If only I could do what that person's doing. If only I could, then I would be like this. God doesn't deal in if onlys. God just wants you to say, but God. In every situation that you face, in every area that you're lacking, but God. Speak God over that area of lack and you will see increase in Jesus' name over time because God moves in every situation where there's a need because he loves you. And it may not look like how you want it to look like. It may not be exactly what you're looking for. But that doesn't mean God's not at work. It just means that he's doing things in his timing, his way. How many of you love that? It's very quiet in this place this morning. You're like, oh, but I want it yesterday. Anyway, that's where we left off. So let's get straight into it. Verses 33 to 35 say this in John chapter 11. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have the shortest verse in the Bible that I'm aware of. Jesus wept. When God actually cried, Jesus wept. You know, these verses prove, again if there hasn't been enough already, that Jesus wasn't a wimpy, unfeeling man. He had feelings. You know, Mary's and the people's grief affected Jesus greatly, so much that he groaned and he wept. You know, the Greek word for deeply moved is the same word used for a horse's snort. Did you know that? You know how horses do the, I don't know, can I do it? How did I do? That was pretty poor, but you know what I'm trying to do. What does it sound? Do it again. (laughs) That one was better. It's also the same word for an outburst of anger, which is interesting. 
I'm not going to do that right. No, I'm not going to do that now. Jesus was outraged at death. He absolutely was. And he was going to do something about it. He was convinced, I'm, I'm fixing this. Right, it's like he's rolling up his sleeves. Right, death, you've got something to you know, be afraid of because I'm here. And so he was fired up. Uh, so he asked to see Lazarus's tomb. And then in verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but man, it packs a powerful punch for me, and I'm sure for you as well. Those two words tell us Jesus mourned his friend's death deeply. And that also tells us that Jesus is like us. He's felt what we feel. And he understands what we go through. That's what makes Christianity the most sense on the planet. Our God is the only God that came in human form and felt what we felt and did what we did so that he could empathize and understand with creation, knowing how it feels, and particularly mankind. So it tells us that Jesus is like us. He understands what we're going through. And when we hurt, God hurts. It's important that you understand that today, particularly the person that says, well, where's my God when I'm so affected and upset and hurt? Why doesn't he understand? Why is he letting this happen? God understands your sorrow. He understands your emotion. He understands your feelings. And he just wants you to know that he understands, which is why Jesus wept. Verse 36 and 37. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So once again, it doesn't seem to matter what Jesus does. He seems to be able to split the crowd with whatever he does, whatever he says, because people are interpreting things differently. You know, it seems whatever Jesus did caused some sort of a division amongst the people. And this time it was his emotions that divided the people because they saw him weep. Some commented on how much Jesus loved Lazarus. Others complained because he didn't arrive in time to heal him. Only if, but if, but only, what if? And they reasoned that since Jesus gave the blind man sight, surely he could heal a sick man before he died. So what's going on here, God? They don't understand. The crowd is split. Verses 38 to 40. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, because he's still impacted by what's going on, came to the tomb. And it was a cave, and there was a stone that lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Can you imagine if you were there, the hush over the crowd when he says that? They'd be like, say what? (laughs) The the man's dead in there. He smells really bad, and you want to let that out? Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. For he has been dead for four days. I think Martha's the logical one. (laughs) Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So essentially what this scripture is saying is that the stench is going to knock you out. It's going to smell so bad. You do not want to go there, Jesus. It's just foul. But Jesus is still stirred up. I picture him like, I don't know if anyone's ever done this, but as a kid... I'm happy to admit that I used to watch World Wrestling Federation, like the wrestlers, right? And you'd have some wrestlers. It was all acting. It's not real wrestling. And, and, and people might 
crucify me for saying that, but it's not, they're trained to act. And some of them would come out and they'd just be hulking up, you know, going, going nuts, getting excited, pumping themselves up. They'd grab the ring ropes and shake them and they'd get all excited. I'd imagine Jesus like that. Can you imagine that? Maybe that's sacrilegious, I don't know. But Jesus is fired up. He's pumped up. He's so angry that death would come to this man. And he's ready to just give it a knockout elbow off the top rope. Lay the smack down. That's what he's going to do. So Jesus is fired up. So what does he do? He does something utterly ridiculous and he says to the people, move the stone. And everyone would be just scratching their heads. What? Why would we do that, Jesus? Instead of burying dead bodies in holes in the ground, they put them into, into buried, buried into caves. And the body um, was wrapped tightly in long cloth strips, kind of like you might have seen um, on TV or pictures of mummies. They're like all wrapped and, and done like, up like that. So it's like a, a roll of toilet tissue. It's gone, you know, you do those games with the youth that we do and we wrap them up in toilet. It's like that. So their faces were covered with square cloths and huge round stone covered the entrance to the cave and it moved in a groove that was dug in the front of the opening. And after a year when the flesh had rotted off the bones, the family then enter the tomb, they put the bones in a box and they keep the box in a slot in the cave wall. So you can imagine this scene when Jesus says, open the cave, move the stone away. There's confusion. And people must have been thinking, well, what does he think he's doing? <laughs> he must be crazy. There would have been people thinking that. The man's dead. You know, dead is dead. Someone came here just to learn that today. When someone's dead, they're dead. They're gone. Whether it's one minute, one hour, one day, four days, after he takes his last breath, he is dead. He's gone. But Martha, as I said, the practical one, points out how bad the stench would be. Jesus, it's going to smell really bad. After four days, it's probably strong enough to knock over the entire crowd of people that were there. But it didn't keep Jesus from doing what he came to do and to show them God's glory. Because Jesus knew God was going to be glorified that day. Okay. Verses 41 to 44 says this. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you, you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, I said this that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. But he tripped and came fifth. No, that's just a really bad joke that my dad used to say. And I had to slip it in there. Come forth. <laughs> and he, at least two people laughed. Thank you. And he who, he who had died come out of bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So you'd be mistaken for thinking that this is an episode of Return of the Living Dead, a show uh, like that. But... The Bible doesn't tell us who moved the stone, does it? But at least two people didn't hesitate because it would have taken two people to move the stone. Maybe it was Mary and Martha. I don't know. They were the ones that declared their faith in Jesus knowing that uh, he was... Just tell them I'm busy. Uh, knowing that he was the one that was going to do the miracle. Uh, they had the faith to believe that he could ask God anything and it would be done. 
So maybe it was them. They weren't turned off by the prospect of the stench either. I think they were fine with it. They didn't consider the possibility of embarrassment if Jesus didn't come through. They weren't afraid they'd look crazy for being part of this lunacy. They just backed up their belief with obedience and did whatever Jesus asked. So it doesn't say they did it, but maybe they did. After the stone was removed, Jesus thanked God for hearing him. And most of us would have been holding our noses and keeping our mouths shut because of the stench. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He prayed out loud so that the people would hear him and know that the source of the miracle that he was about to perform was from God. And then Jesus called Lazarus to come out. What a scene this would have been. Come out of the tomb. I'm actually glad he called Lazarus by name because Jesus carries so much power that if he didn't call Lazarus by name, I reckon the whole grave and all the people inside would have started marching out. So it's good that Jesus was specific. Lazarus waddled out as best he could. Let me just show you this. He would have looked something like that. Try walking like that. Done the worm on the ground to worm out, I don't know. Anyway, that's what he would have looked like. And, you know, Jesus, miracle worker, could have done a zap and, and removed the grave clothes to make him just walk out. But this is important. Catch this. This is really something I really loved seeing. Instead of just zapping the grave clothes and having them gone, he involved people in the miracle. That's so key. He told them to unwrap Lazarus. So it wasn't just Jesus' show and I'm doing the miracle and here, but he involved the people around him as part of the miracle and what he did. He involved people in the miracle telling them to unwrap Lazarus and somebody did. We don't know who, might have been a lot of them, might have been Mary and Martha, might have, it doesn't say who. But Jesus involved people and Jesus proved he is the resurrection and the life by raising Lazarus from the dead. You know, he loves using us to see people made free. We all have a role to play. That's what I learned from this. We all have a role to play. We cry out for miracles, but what are we doing with our hands and feet? Jesus says, get them dirty, get involved. Loose Lazarus. He wants us to play a role in seeing people's lives loosed in the name of Jesus. And so don't be an idle bystander holding your nose from the stench in the background, but be the person that goes, yes, Jesus, whatever you ask, I'm going to do, and play a role in seeing people made free in this life. It's so rewarding to help people. And when you do, and if that person doesn't know Jesus and then they do, you've played a part in that, and it's not to boast, but it's like, wow, God used me. God's at work still today and changing lives, and I got to play a part in God being glorified in that person's life. So don't be the, the person that sits on the fence watching. But get in. Get involved in the miracle. Be practical. What can you do to help loose people in the name of Jesus? Amen. So, John chapter 11, verse 45 and 48. Let's keep going. Then many of the Jews uh, who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together. And they said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
There's a bit of panic among the Pharisees now because this is getting serious. You know, this is the seventh miracle in John's Gospels and it offers proof that Jesus is not just Lord of this world, but he's also Lord of the next world. He's not just Lord of today, but he's also Lord of the many distant tomorrows. And he is there when we need him the most. Trust in the Lord because he is there for you. But here's the thing. The Pharisees couldn't explain this. Maybe they had excuses for how Jesus could turn water into wine. Maybe they had reasoning as to how a blind man from birth could all of a sudden be seen. It was a different man or whatever. They can explain that away. But seeing a dead man live again ought to be enough to make anybody believe in Jesus. Because how do you fake that? (laughs) Many of the eyewitnesses to Lazarus' resurrection did believe. And this made the Pharisees nervous. Because they could not come up with an explanation to this. Some who didn't believe blabbed the events to the Pharisees and they called a meeting because that's what you do when you're worried. Let's have a meeting. Let's all get together. Let's have a blah, blah, blah session and try and come up with reasoning around this. You know, some some who didn't believe joined that meeting and they're like, how can we scheme our way out of this? Because they're worried. The religious leaders had had trouble with Jesus all along, but now he proved that he had the ultimate power, the power over death. This is major. How could they maintain control with him around? The answer is they couldn't. So they panicked. And they were afraid that Jesus would start a religious revolution and that everyone in the country would believe in him. So they're freaking out. This this could be a big movement here. And the Romans would take away their freedoms. Notice everything that they're concerned about is to do with them. Oh, but my way of life is going to change. My way of living is going to change. He's shaking the tree so much that I'm going to have to adjust. I don't want that. I like things how they are right now. Anyone relating to some words that I'm saying? Many of us don't like change. Many of us are challenged by change. All through the Lord's ministry, the Pharisees had tried to discredit the Lord Jesus on the basis of his humble origin. You know, what good can come out of Nazareth? His home, his disregard for the legalistic restrictions, they used all these things to discredit Jesus. But there was a miracle they couldn't discount, and that is the resurrection from the dead. They had no reason. In fact, they even accepted this fact that Jesus did do that. But that's why they then moved to take him out, because this is challenging our way of life. This is challenging uh, what we do. He's going to get such a following that no one's going to follow us, so we need to remove this guy. See, the holy things in their eyes, the Pharisees, that is, is their their special property. It's theirs. The law was theirs. They were very protective. And so at this supreme moment, big with the fate of themselves and of the nation on the line because of this life-defining moment where Jesus shows that he is... Lord over, uh, de- over sin and death. Their whole anxiety is about their personal interests. That's all they care about. How can we now fix this to preserve our way of living? That's the question that they're asking. And so a variety of people gathered around Lazarus's tomb and Mary and Martha had believed in Jesus before they went there. But after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many more believed. And so Pharisees are very nervous. Others refused to believe in spite of what they witnessed because they wanted to preserve their way of living. So my question today is, what group of people are we like? 
I hope we're not like the people that want to preserve their way of living. But church has always been like this, so why does he do it that way? Well, he's changing church. I don't don't like that decision. I don't like... Chitter and chatter can start in churches when things maybe change a little bit. And I want to encourage you, if you're disturbed by something like that, who are the best people to talk to? My wife. (laughs) And me. And me. You need to know that we're available. We might be busy on a Sunday and we've said, look, talk to us before a service or after, not during, because we can't hear your essay during the service because there's a lot on our minds and I'll probably forget half of it anyway. But make a time, come and see us because nothing's too hard to talk through. We've got nothing to hide. If you're ever thinking, oh, why why do they do that sort of thing that way? Come and ask and we'll explain. I guarantee you there'll be an explanation. Now, whether you agree with it or not, we're all different people. I'm very aware in this room, we actually have a huge diversity of church background. So we're not all just Pentecostal uh, people. Uh, Some of us have come from more traditional churches. I would like to think, and I'm not blowing our own trumpet, but I would like to think that we present church in a way that is acceptable to everyone. We appease all backgrounds. We don't sort of say, well, we're not doing that because, you know, that's far too traditional. You know, we try and do things in a way that is respected by everyone. Now, are we going to get it right 100% of the time? Of course not. There might be something in your mind you think, oh, I really wish we did that. Why don't you come and tell me? And then we might just do it. (laughs) I'm not saying Anita and I know everything and how to run church. We're just doing what God leads us to do. Amen? That's all we can do. Is God, what would you have us do with this congregation, with this church? And we've been here nearly nine years and I think we're going great. Uh, But if you've ever got something on your heart or something in your mind and you're like... I don't really understand that or why is that happening or why is this? Come and ask us because that's the best thing you can do. Can I tell you the worst thing you can do? Have a meeting. Gather in your little groups without the pastor and talk about it all and get stirred up and upset because that's what causes church splits. That's what causes fractions. We've got churches in this town that have had to unfortunately go through that not once, twice, maybe three times. It's so sad. I don't want that to happen here. Now, I can't control that. I can't stop you from having a meeting. But all I can do is say, hey, if you've got questions, come and see us. That's right, Anita, right? She's with me on that. She's nodding her head. So that's good. (laughs) Ring Anita first because she's... No, just... Now that's me being silly. We are available and if you have anything, nothing is too silly to ask. Is that cool? Cool. Because like this, they had a meeting, the the... The Pharisees got together because they were disgruntled with what Jesus was doing and they were causing and coming up with a way to get rid of that problem. And so this is the beginning of the plot to get Jesus. Cool. That was all for free. It wasn't even in my notes, but it just came to me and I thought, let's just say all of that. Okay. Verses 49 to 53. We're coming up to the end of the chapter shortly. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest, said to them, You know nothing at all. (laughs) How encouraging. (laughs) Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. It's the beginning of the 
end, or so they thought. But we know that the end is the beginning, don't we? So that meeting must have been pretty chaotic. You've got Pharisees like a bunch of chickens that don't have their food or they're getting chased by a dog or something. Would have been exactly like that. They're all feathers are fluffed up. They're disturbed. They're worried. And so it would have been chaotic. You know, imagine 71 men talking about themselves, debating what to do with Jesus, arguing in loud voices. You know, finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, you know nothing at all. That made him quiet because he's like their head poobah. So in other words, he told them that they didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't understand. They're just all squawking and whatever. Uh, he wasn't tactful at all. He just let it out. And he had a reputation for being pretty ruthless and proud. And that's probably why he spoke out like that. But no one or nothing was going to get in his way. So naturally, Jesus had to be eliminated. And that's why... Uh, they needed to consider sacrificing the one for the good of the many. In other words, to preserve our way of life, we need to take Jesus out. Here's the thing. Caiaphas was only thinking about how to save his position and the status quo in his own country when he said, you know nothing at all. But John added a biggest perspective to that remark. In God's plan... Jesus was going to die for the sins of Israel as well as the whole world. One man's death would save them spiritually and bring all of God's children together in the future. So earlier the religious leaders had wanted Jesus to give them a sign, didn't they? They kept saying, give us a sign to show us who you are. Well, what better sign than raising Lazarus from the dead? What kind of sign were they looking for? So what do they do? When they finally get the sign, now that they know who he is, they plot to kill Jesus because they can't handle that their way of life is about to be radically turned upside down. So let's get rid of him because he is a problem. Verse 54 says this, out of the mouth of priests, well done priest. Okay. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there remained with his disciples. So this is all about um, crowd withdrawal. Jesus is escaping the crowd. And that's wisdom. And we've talked about that before. Sometimes we need to exercise a bit of wisdom. Uh, Lots of topics getting flown around at the moment. Do I get vaccinated? Do I not get vaccinated? Am I for it? Am I against it? We've told you our position as a movement is a conscious choice. And so no one is going to get judged in this church, no matter what you choose. No one's going to get attacked. No one's going to get questioned. And if that's happening, I want to know about it, because I'll put the fire out quicker than you can blink. Because that's not what we're here to do. We're actually here in unity to worship Jesus. And the enemy is trying to use this platform to bring division. Some states, unfortunately, have been told, you've now got to be vaccinated to go to church. I can tell you that our movement, and I'm sure others are petitioning and talking with government to protest that in a very polite and godly way because the church has never closed its doors to anyone through any pandemic before and nor should they. Uh, What I'm confident in telling you at the moment is that's not happening in Queensland and I say at the moment because things can change on a dime. But with the latest things announced this week, uh, there is no mention of church and we've had that confirmed with the state. Uh, Our movement has been in communication with them and you can be confident 
that we won't be asking anybody, are you vaccinated, are you not, show us your passport, whatever it is. That doesn't happen in this place. And, and so just be encouraged with that. And uh, let's not bicker over this silly thing, because that's what the enemy wants. And he's using it so connivingly and sneakily to infiltrate and come in and, and, and bring division and get people arguing and disagreeing and fighting. And, well, I think this. And, I, and Facebook's like just the... I can't think of the superlatives to explain Facebook that I'm allowed to say in church. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's a cesspool of rubbish. It is. It, it can be good as well. I love seeing pictures of what people are doing in life and that's the good part. But you get on there and you have your keyboard warrior moments and it's no one in this church, I'm sure. It's people in other churches. Uh, and and they just, they've got to have their say and they've got to argue and they've got to... I've said it before, never argue on Facebook. It is the wrong platform because nobody will ever win. Because there's always the right of reply. There's always another essay. There's always a... Forget that. Anyway, anyway. Withdraw from the crowd when you need to. Use wisdom. Is this battle worth fighting? Or do I just leave it to a conscious choice to everyone else? Make your own decision. Do your own research. Because if you're looking for us from this platform to tell you what you should or shouldn't do, that's not going to happen. Because I'm not your conscience. <laughs> Everyone's very quiet in here this morning. Oh, oh. But I'm not. I'm not. Now, if you want to come to me privately and talk about our views, we're happy to talk to you. We're not going to try and persuade you to do anything, but we'll tell you why we're doing what we're doing. But it won't happen from the platform because we don't abuse the platform. The platform's to talk about Jesus and to bring unity. So, withdraw from the crowd, use wisdom, know when you need to do that. Okay. Look, Jesus was no dummy. He's not silly. He knew what he was doing. And he knew that it was wise to move on from the crowd. That was his time. He's pushed the button and the envelopes enough and he knew it was his season to now withdraw from there. You know, the religious leaders are plotting to kill him with increasing intensity he took his disciples to Ephraim for a private retreat. And this town was close to the desert. And if necessary, Jesus could run into the desert uh, if he needed to get away from his enemies. Let's read verses 55 to 57 as we come to a close. And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and smoked. Uh, smoked. They spoke among themselves. Glad they didn't smoke. Jeez. <laughs> As they stood in the temple. Uh, you know when you're doing like a text. I have fat thumbs, okay? So many of you get messages from me and there's typos and wrong words. Man, you can do some really bad ones sometimes. And you think after the fact, yeah, I really should have proofread that before I... Anyway, that's what I just did then. Smoke instead of spoke. So, uh, what do you think that he will... Uh, what do you think that he will not come to the feast? That's what they're talking about. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So once again, Jesus is the talk of the town. Is he going to come to Passover? Is he going to be here? I wonder if he's going to come. What's going to happen? Everyone's a buzz about Jesus. And John marks the time in Jesus' ministry with the Jewish feast. So now that it's Passover time again, this is the third one mentioned in his book. Uh, so we can therefore deduce that it's Jesus' third year of ministry. And, and since it was one of the three times that Jewish males were required 
to go to Jerusalem to, Jerusalem to celebrate, a huge crowd of people filled the city. And one of the rituals at Passover was this ceremonial cleansing. It's like immersion in water to make people religiously clean after touching a dead body. So this ceremony took place at the temple. And while people are waiting in line for their turn, you can imagine the queues, uh, naturally they talked to the people around them. And all the buzz, the number one topic trending on Twitter was Jesus. That's what they were talking about. And whether or not he'd show up for Passover... You know, hashtag Passover, will he come? I don't know. That's what they were doing. Everybody knew the religious leaders had a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. And it was as though, remember in the old westerns, you'd have wanted posters? It was like they had wanted posters around Jerusalem. You know, wanted. Jesus calls himself the Christ. There'd be a reward. Bring him to us so that we can sort him out. So they would have been tacked to every tree in the country with a reward for turning him in to the religious leaders. That's how this chapter ends. It's kind of like one of those cool movies. You're like, oh, is he going to come? Are they going to get him? What's going to happen? Well, we'll find out when we move on to John chapter 12. But let's wrap up the chapter for now because we've done it over a couple of weeks. The first thing was when Jesus was sick, uh, his sisters asked Jesus to come, but he waited two days and they're like, what the... Why did he wait two days when he could have come straight away? Did he not love Lazarus? Come. But we all realized and learned that, that it's God's timing for the miracle. And if he hadn't awaited those two days, there could have been an explanation as to maybe he wasn't quite dead yet. Maybe he was in a coma. And so he waited long enough and arrived four days after he died to prove that God is God and that he is the resurrection and the life. And so in light of Lazarus's death, um, Jesus told Martha that he is the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11, 17 to 27. Then we talked about Jesus who joined the mourners in crying because Lazarus had died. And then Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Hallelujah. And as a result of this miracle, the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus. So he's now withdrawn from the city. Can we just hit the lights? And I've got a video I want to play as we come to a close. And Billy, you can come play after the video. Of all the fears that grip our hearts, no fear is greater than the fear of death. There are those who will tell you that death is a natural part of life. But if death is just a part of life, then why does it cause us such anger and sorrow? When God created humanity, he intended for us to grow more and more beautiful over time. But in one tragic moment, we unleashed sin into the world, and everything broke, including our bodies. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and it fills God's heart with anger and sorrow even more than it does ours, because death was not a part of God's original plan. The Bible says that when Jesus approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he quaked with rage, and his eyes filled with tears. He was overwhelmed by the suffering caused by death, a curse we had brought upon ourselves. Death's curse was physical. Both the world and our bodies were decaying. 
but death's curse was also spiritual, eternally separating humanity from their creator, the source of all light, love, and life. But because of God's amazing love, he chose to surrender all power and glory to rescue us from death. Jesus, God's only son, was expelled from the presence of the Father and thrust into complete darkness in our place. He took humanity's curse upon himself, breaking death's grip on us and purchasing humanity a place at the Father's side forever. A day is coming when the true King will return at last to restore the world to its full glory and us with it, renewing both soul and body. You'll still be yourself, but even more so. You'll finally be the real you. On that day, we'll look at each other and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses of the real you, flashes of it, and now here you are. Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal one. You're not going to float through the clouds. You're going to walk. You're going to eat. You're going to laugh. You're going to hug. You're going to sing in realms and degrees of power and joy that you cannot now imagine. Some will tell you not to fear death because it's part of life. But Jesus says not to fear death because it's been defeated. And the day will come when Jesus embraces you with his nail-scarred hands and says, Welcome home. I have so much to show you. So good. Come on up, Billy. The video says that some tell us not to fear death because it's part of life. It's how it is. You get born, you live life, you die. But I love how that narration put it. Jesus says not to fear death because it's been defeated. It's why we need Jesus. It's why we need him in our hearts. We need to live our lives for him in this life so that we can have life in the next. Jesus conquered sin and death. He raised Lazarus from the dead to prove it, that he was Lord over death, that death has no sting anymore. But to have life in the next life, we need Christ. We need to invest our trust and our hope and our faith in him. And so in this moment, would you just bow your heads? If you're at home, don't tune out because this is for you as well. people today that need to accept Jesus and not only accept him but commit and dedicate your life to living for him the Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead that he is the resurrection and the life you will be saved so I want to ask in this room this morning people online living your life for Jesus because the time is urgent it's never been more urgent you've only got to look around the world and flick on your TV and see the trouble the torment the challenge our world is breaking and dying around us and the time of Jesus' return 
is ever so near. So if you're in this place and you're not sure where your heart is at in regards to God, now is your moment to declare and lift up your hand in His presence and say, I need Jesus, Pastor Jeremy. I need to accept Him today. If you're at home, we can't see into your living rooms, but God sees your heart and He's looking for a response today. So if you want to respond today, would you just lift up your hand and say, Pastor Jeremy, include me in a prayer. I need Jesus today. I need to surrender my life to Him completely. I've held on to the reins for too long. I've tried to control what I'm doing and I just can't do life in my own strength anymore. I see that hand over there. That's great. Yep, I see that hand. But I need to surrender my life because I can't do it in my own strength. God's hand is out reaching out towards you saying, let me lift you up. Let me fill your life with that which you need. Because He is all we need. He's the name above every name. And He provides for our needs. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. So we have a few hands that are raised and, and, and online at home. Can we pray together this morning? Because we all need to live our lives for Him and declare our faith in Him. So say after me, Dear Jesus, I surrender my life to you completely and wholly. I don't want to hold the reins anymore. I need you to take the control. And so God, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that He is the resurrection and the life. And I choose to live my life for Him from this day forward, all of my days, are now dedicated to His service. Use me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we praise God? Thank Him today. Now, before I close, I want to talk to a different sort of person. You know Jesus, you love Jesus, but maybe you're in a season of life where things are tough. You know, we had a moment last week where we bent the knee and we said, God, we acknowledge you as the resurrection and the life. I just feel that God wants to touch a few people in this place this morning before we close. I'm not in a hurry. Are you in a hurry? Coffee's there. It'll be there when we're finished. But I love how the video put it. Not to fear death because it's been defeated. Now, I'm not talking about you're nearly going to die. I'm talking about you're in a season that feels like death part of you is you feel is gone is destroyed dead because whatever that part is it's not flourishing it's not happening how you thought it would it's not blooming into the beautiful flower that you expected that part of your life to bloom into but God's here today to say to you don't be discouraged don't be dismayed I am with you and I'm leading you through the times of drought and barrenness yo yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I fear no evil because He is the resurrection and the life. And so if that's you this morning and that's speaking to you, you're in a season of that feels like death. You're not dying. You know what I'm saying. There's a part of you that just hasn't flourished how you expected. And maybe there's a dream or a vision that hasn't come to pass and you're still believing for that thing to happen. Well, let's declare God's faithfulness over that today. If that's you, stand to your feet where you are. Stand to your feet. Respond this morning because God spoke to me I know there are people here that's why I'm taking this time because there are people that need a touch from heaven today to encourage you to remind you that he is for you and not against you
and that he is with you though you walk through the storms of life right now. God is with you to minister to you in the midst of your storm. And the day will come when Jesus embraces you with his nail-scarred hands and he says, welcome home. I have so much to show you. For the people standing, let's look forward to that day when sickness and disease doesn't matter anymore, weeping, gnashing, no more crying. Jesus returns and he makes all things new. We're going to believe for fresh life to be breathed into what you're believing for in this moment. So church, you see the ones standing. Gather around them. Lay hands on them if you're near. Reach your hands out if you're far away. And let's pray for these people in this moment for the Holy Spirit to bring a fresh wind to breathe life on their dreams again. Help them to dream again. Help them to have vision again around what God's put on their hearts. So Father God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we declare in this moment a fresh wind to breathe over these people standing in your presence today. God, that you would just bring back to life dreams of days gone by, visions of the past that haven't been fulfilled yet, that haven't come yet, and maybe discouragement has crept in, disappointment, disillusionment. I pray now for life to be breathed into these dry bones again. God, that you're going to bring breakthrough, that you're going to bring miraculous intervention in every situation because you are a loving Heavenly Father. You love your children. And so, God, we lift our faith on behalf of these standing today and we pray together. We stir ourselves up and we believe, Father God, together that your goodness and your mercy and your love is going to flood into each person, into their visions, into their dreams. Father God, that you would breathe life again in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Can we praise Him for His goodness, for His breakthrough power, for the victory? God's with you in the midst of your storm. Let me pray God's blessing. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you that your Holy Spirit leads us and guides us this week and into the next. Lord, help us to press in deeper. Help us to be hungry. Help us to yearn for more of you in every part of our life. As we hand the reins over to, to you, Father God, may it be less of us and more of you each and every day. Increase in our lives in every way. Help us to make good choices. Lead us and guide us. Encourage us this week, I pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.